0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, uh, Marissa Di Natale and Chris Sturidis. Hi, guys. Hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. What's going on? Um,
1: it's been busy. It's, really, it's really early in the morning for me. I know. So not, not much is going on.
0: Yeah, and just to explain, we uh, are going to have a conversation with Rob Faber, the CEO of Moody's, and we uh, recorded that earlier uh Prior to this and um for it all to work out Mercy you had to get up at like what 3 30 pacific time or oh, 4 30 oh 4 30 oh yeah oh okay okay, well, okay. Right. Right. 4 30 is the
1: new 7 30 it's like <laughs> i always say <laughs>
0: you, you look great though for 4 30 thanks
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs>
0: fantastic. <laughs> fantastic yeah yeah and we were was it last week were we in uh this past week no it was it was the week before last when we were in uh, Chicago, right? We talked yeah. about that on the live and we're going to be in, Oh, Chris Dallas. and I are going to be in Dallas. Yeah. Next. Is it next week, Chris? I believe it yes. is. Next yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Another conference. And hopefully we see, uh, see all of you or as many as you would like to come to visit us in Dallas and you're off to you're
1: going off to to to, Japan for two and a half Japan. weeks. Yeah. yeah.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Um, okay. Uh, I, I want to bring in Rob here pretty quickly, but before we go to we have that conversation, thought we could talk a, a little a bit about uh we're going to talk about risks. This 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 podcast is about uh, risks uh, broadly, and Rob's going to talk about a, a panoply of th- of threats uh, that businesses and governments face. Uh, we're gonna in this first part talk about economic risks as you know we're economists, and it, all of a sudden it feels like there's a boatload of risk. I, you know I don't know about you, but you got the UAW strike, which is now, you know, more than a week old, uh, kicking into higher gear. You've got uh, student loan borrowers who need to start repaying on their debt uh, in October in the next couple of weeks. Uh, you got this federal government shutdown It now feels like almost a done deal. There was going to be a shutdown. It's just a question of how painful uh you got did you see oil prices i mean we're back over 90 bucks a barrel on wt west texas intermediate ah i don't know and then you got the the really the thing that came out of nowhere uh it well i guess it's not out of nowhere it just but it feels like it's like in our face now is higher mortgage rates uh or higher long-term interest rates the 10-year treasury bond I think yesterday it got up to four and a half percent, right? Yep. So uh, you know that's us uh, getting to a place where it's going to start to biting. So all those things add up uh, to um, you know maybe some real pain here and some threat risk to the economy and the expansion. You know uh, as we move towards the end of the year into twenty twenty four. And by the way, I'm sure I can see this. Chris is not in his head. I'm not not happy about it. Yeah, that the yield curve, you know it inverted about a year ago and the average length of time historically when the curve inverts and you get a recession is one year. So it's just like 12, really can't be, can't be happening. Can't be happening, but let's, let's go down each of those uh, quickly and talk a little bit about them and how we're thinking about how they're going to play out and, and the risk around that. And maybe I'll start with you, Marissa around, and, and this is sort of chronological sort of, uh, UAW strike. That's kind of that's in train. You know yeah. how are things going there, and uh, maybe you can just reprise how we're thinking about it and what the risks are.
1: I would say of all the risks that you named, this is the one that I'm the least worried about. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see if that's right or wrong. But you know, I'm more more worried about those other ones in terms of the impact on the economy. So a week ago. The UAW decided to strike against all three big U.S. automakers, one strike at each plant. So there's about 150,000 UAW members in the U.S. This strike you know, could have obviously involved that many people. It didn't. It only involves about a little under 13,000 of those members combined at those three plants. Um, so it's been going on for a week the fact that it's 13,000 out of 150,000 members cer- certainly mini- mitigates the economic damage that this would do but actually in 45 minutes uh the UAW is going to announce that it may s- expand that strike mm-hmm. if it hasn't made significant strides in talks with the with the automakers a few days ago um the Canadian auto union struck against uh, Ford, a Ford plant in Canada, and they, worked out, they have worked out a deal. We don't know what that deal looks like. They haven't divulged the details of what that entailed, but they've made some progress there. That doesn't have real bearing so much on the U.S. strike. Um, so the bottom line is we have some historical precedent for this. There was a 40-day strike. Um, back in 2019. It didn't really have a discernible economic impact, measurable economic impact when you look at things like GDP, right? It certainly crimped supply. I mean, the good news here is that the US automakers have about 70 days of inventory of autos. So in terms of the price effect on vehicles, both new, new and used, the strike would probably have to go on for you know significantly longer than that last strike, 40 days, for us to see a real price effect. Um, if it does, the price effect could be significant. If we have more plant shutdowns, um, if the strike is prolonged, if it goes through the end of the year, we could have you know five to ten percent increases in both new and used vehicles as inventory is drawn down. Um, so there's enough inventory to get us through there is enough strike funds to 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 get the UAW through a prolonged strike particularly if they do this staggered approach where they start kind of adding one plant after another right and they they keep expanding it over time ultimately you know in in we've done some scenarios on this we think <clears throat> If it goes on like through the end of the year into the first quarter, we could see maybe uh, one or two tenths off of GDP growth in the fourth quarter. So not a huge economic impact. And I think the risks of that happening are probably pretty low. Like I said, I, I'm not as worried that it's going to be that extended or that um. Uh, all-encompassing in terms of the number of employees involved it looks like they're going to do this in a staggered way which will limit the economic impact on the other hand it could drag it out longer
0: sorry about that I was uh, on mute um so uh uh just a, just one factual uh question around the inventory I where did you get that number the 70 plus I thought it was kind of 59.60 that's based on Cox Automotive
1: uh, yeah, so it, that's Delantus. I think
0: has Delantus has that kind of, but not the other um,
1: two. Right. So the average okay. between the big three is somewhere between is somewhere probably in the sixty range. I think yeah. okay. um, GM has the most inventory. theirs is like seventy. So it no, varies. Between. Delan-
0: is that? I think it's Delantus. I think uh, is or, it? I, I know I Ford has so.
1: the leanest inventory of yeah. the three. Yeah. Um, yeah sorry about okay. that. No I know worries. they, they no differ, but they're in that range of like. Fifty to seventy days of inventory.
0: Yeah, we're Um, we're all. I, I, if you remember back to that AI podcast, that I won't I won't go into in detail, but I I got the statistics badly wrong. But I do think I think it's fifty nine or sixty days in total for the big three. I believe. Okay, based on Cox Automotive, but still, that's to your point. That historically has been deemed to be an appropriate level of inventory. So it's uh, you know, it, it, it does suggest that there's a little bit of room here in terms of what kind of impact it might have on prices because there are, there is still some ample.
1: Yeah. So it, they can, they can, you know, we can get through, right. And get through a month or two probably with this.
0: Let me ask you, you had, you, you, uh, when you first began, you said this is the least risk, the work, the, the risk that you're least worried about. Can I ask what, which one are you most worried about? I'm just curious.
1: Um, probably high oil prices, high
0: oil prices. Okay. Yeah. You too, Chris. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Me too. All right. Let's move on. Uh, student loans. That's next up the, uh, we, well, that's happening. We know for sure that's happening, uh, in, uh, in October. How big a deal is that Chris? The, this is the, the resumption of student loan payments.
2: Yeah, it's, it's certainly a deal. Is it a, it's probably not a, uh, recession inducing deal. Right, so we estimate about 24 million borrowers will go from receiving forbearance to having to start to make a payment uh, come October. Average payment is around $300 a month, so that works out to approximately $7 billion a month, or 85, 86 billion dollars annualized. Right, so it's uh, it's significant, but there are some reasons to believe that it won't be that the impact on the economy won't be at that level. Right, you you do have income-based repayment programs that more students are taking advantage or borrowers are taking advantage of, so that would reduce their monthly obligation to something that's a little bit more affordable, and allow them to continue uh, spending in other ways, supporting the economy. You do have a uh, a delay in any delinquencies being reported to the uh, credit bureaus for a year, so that also reduces the immediate uh, cost, if you will of a borrower uh, not making a payment on their student loan. So that also buys us some time here, so the impact could be um, could be lessened. And then the other thing I would note is that you do have a lot of borrowers who are prepared to make payments, right? They're certainly higher income uh, uh, student loan borrowers who completed their degree. They knew this day was coming. They've been either saving uh, saving up in order to make these payments or they've adjusted their spending Appropriately, that they'll be able to make the payments without really missing a beat. So, from that perspective, you know, I I see that the impact could be something closer to say sixty billion dollars a year all in. That's about two tenths of uh, GDP. So that's not inconsequential, but uh, again, alone, given all the positive factors in the economy, it's probably not enough to push us into recession. So clearly, something to watch out for. And if you're a business that caters to this student. Borrower population. If you're a lender, or you um, you sell goods and services really into that demographic, obviously it's going to have much more of a bite. But if we're thinking about the, the macroeconomic consequences, mm-hmm. fairly low on the list, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so UAW strike under. I got it's hard to handicap the scenarios, but under uh, the scenario where it kind of lasts through October, much of the Ultimately, much of the production is just is uh, disrupted. That would be a couple tenths of a percent, something like that, I think. And then you're saying uh, student loans, couple tenths of a percent. Okay, so yep. let's we'll do this for each of these risks and see what it adds up to. Yeah, um, I
2: think that's the issue. Once yeah, you add the them issue, up, right,
0: right? Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll take the next one, and that's uh, the government shutdown. That uh, you know that feels like it's happening. I, I think pretty high probability. And of course, that goes to the fact that uh, the uh, federal fiscal year uh, ends at, se- at se- September. The new one starts October one, and uh, the, gov- uh, the government, lawmakers, the president, Congress have got to sign a piece of legislation continuing to fund the government to keep it open. Right now, there, you know, that's not that's there is no legislation. So in, unless something happens here, the government's going to shut shut down on October one. Uh, we've been here before many times, uh, you know, uh, and, uh, uh historically what happens is people get upset. Um, uh, you know, federal government employees don't get paid, or at least those that are, uh, furloughed, you know, kind of the non-essential workers, contractors to the federal government, they don't get paid. Uh, that ultimately has, uh, all, creates all kinds of problems. And the longer it drags on the the more things don't get done that need to get done, you know, uh, things that matter like, uh, you know, your homeowner wanting to close on a loan, but you can't get flood insurance and therefore you can't close or uh, parks or the, the, the one often put forward is parks close. Uh, uh, you, know, you need a permit uh, to, from the FDA to uh, certify that, you know, the plant meets code and therefore the, the, the plant can't open you know, I, I go on and on and on, and the longer this drags on, the more the disruption and the more the economic impact. But historically, within a couple three weeks, people really get upset and say, "What the heck are you doing?" And uh, the uh, somebody gets blamed politically, and the the group that gets blamed uh, ultimately says, "Okay, this doesn't make political sense. I'm going to back down," and they 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 come the lawmakers come to terms they pass some kind of uh, of continuing resolution or budget and government reopens and we move forward. Uh, not too much. There's very little damage. I, I think the rule of thumb we have, the history, the heuristic is every week the government shut down, it's about a tenth of a percent. So in our kind of uh, baseline worldview, we have the government shutting down for maybe two weeks, you know, something like that. And then uh, that'll cost the economy a couple tenths of a percent. Uh, but having said all of that, a boatload of risk around that right because this congress feels particularly the house and uh, uh feels particularly dysfunctional uh it, you know one thing i will say is i've seen a lot of, lot of government shutdowns and uh, you know in talking to people in those shutdowns uh, everyone seemed to have kind of a, a, a clear path to how this was going to ultimately get resolved this time not so much. Uh, you know, there's the views here are all over the place, and that just makes me worried that, you know, there is no vision to getting this done. So it could drag on for a while, uh, lo- longer than we anticipate, and that's the risk. So let's say, let's call it another two-tenths of a percent. So <laughs> two, two-tenths on the UAW, two-tenths on the student loans, two-tenths on the, uh, on the government shutdown. Uh, so uh, another risk. Can I throw um, out another
2: risk of a government shutdown? Maybe What's that, Chris? Another risk of a government shutdown that I think is kind of under the the wire is government data will stop as well. Ah, that could, that could complicate the Fed's actions, right? If they're not getting the inflation and employment data, and it also could even if they make a decision, it could also complicate financial markets. Investors are going to be in the dark in terms of well, what is what is the Fed doing here? Are they raising? Why are they not raising? Why are they raising? So I, I think there's even more risk uh, from a monetary policy standpoint, potentially.
0: That's a great point. A I mean, you're saying like the uh, employment, we rely very heavily, lawma- policymakers, the Fed and investors rely very heavily on really two key reports. One's the payroll employment report that comes out the first Friday of every month. And then the CPI consumer price index report that comes out mid-month and if the government shut down the bureau of labor statistics the agency that puts the data together closes right cuz they're deemed to be non essential that 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 data does not get uh, uh is not provided it's not provided in the yeah. marketplace so that's you're, fly, you're you're already flying pretty blind uh given the fog of the data but that that means you're completely blind yeah good point yeah um okay next up how about um uh, uh, this run up in interest rates, uh, Chris. Uh, how big a deal?
2: Uh, yeah, another a ne- another deal, right? So, uh, ten year. You mentioned you mentioned the ten year treasury up at four, four and a half. The spread between thirty year mortgages and ten years is still up in lofty levels, three hundred basis points plus. So, we're looking at mortgage rates of seven and a half percent today.
0: Oh, is that right? They're up to seven and a half.
2: Yeah, I think within. I think. I think 7.48 was the last number I yeah. saw there. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, very very elevated. right? I don't know that it makes uh, existing home buyers or homeowners even more locked in. They're already locked in. If you have a, an interest rate of 3%, 4%, you weren't going to move or certainly weren't going to refinance when rates were at 7%, 7.5 just you know, makes it even more uh, unlikely. So This is a, a housing market that's going to continue to remain under pressure. There won't be much in- existing home inventory going on in the market. Home buyers are are feeling the pinch, right? Seven and a half does bite more and more to particularly first time home buyers. So uh, it's it's certainly going to have a cooling effect, a chilling effect on the uh, housing market. The one saving grace, perhaps, is that you still have a lot of uh, inventory that is under construction today, so that that will continue. So you get some more supply coming online. In uh, incoming quarters or months, so maybe it's not an immediate um, collapse, if you will, or impact, but this is going to continue to grind on the housing market if the higher interest rates persist for an extended period of time.
0: Yeah, I was looking at the uh, what has driven this increase in rates, and the kind of the way we think about it is you can decompose the ten-year yield into inflation expectations, the real short-term interest rate, which is. You know what's the Fed going to do, and then finally the the so-called the term premium—that's the premium bond investors require to buy a long-term bond versus a short-term bond to account for the potential risk. And uh, in the uh, since the of May, and if you go back to early May, the ten-year yield was—I'm I'm making this up, but it's roughly right—three and a half percent. We're now at four and a half. We're up one hundred basis points, a full percentage point. And of that, fifty basis points, half of uh, a half percentage point, is is due to uh, the term premium, uh, uh, and that I, I think that's a catch all for lots of stuff that could be because of concerns about the fiscal situation and bonded, you know, treasury bond issuance uh, it could be due to you know increasing concerns about uh, higher inflation, inflation volatility, um, you know. Uh, lots of different things that could be going on there the term premium is still weirdly still zero even with the increase it's still zero uh so there, you know that may suggest it could go even higher but you know uh and then 40 basis points or almost 50 basis points is real short term interest rate so i think that goes to the fed's decision this recent bump up in 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 and and more recently is the the the, the, the increasing realization that the Fed, even though they may not raise rates much more, they're not cutting rates anytime soon. And when they do cut, it's going to be much less aggressive than I think investors thought. And so that's getting embedded in long-term rates with a higher real short-term rate. The uh, uh, the inflation expectations, interestingly enough, that's really very modest, not really playing a role here. So the Fed has accomplished what it wants to do there in keeping inflation expectations tethered. But uh, but this is something to watch: four and a half percent. So, what do you think if it stays between four and four and a half percent, which is our kind of our baseline view here? You th- I guess that would be okay. It's not going to change our forecast. It doesn't subtract from growth in the fourth quarter. If it's if it goes much above four and a half, though, that's when it starts to do some damage.
2: That's right. That's right. Yeah, we got some. Um, so, it's all right. If we're talking about the GDP impact, it's on construction, right? So, we saw that start mm-hmm. housing starts
0: actually fell. But permits are up, right? So they're there's that was that was weird. That was multi family, wasn't it? Yeah, know, so
2: yeah. but yeah. I I view that as uh some there's certainly some volatility here. I think yeah. builders have a, a hedge or a, an option, if you will, they will they will build if the conditions permit it. Um, so but I don't see that as an immediate uh impact, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's move on to the last one. The one that worries the the, the three of us the most is the higher oil prices, they've risen. You know, we're now, as I mentioned earlier, 90, 95 bucks a barrel, West Texas or Brent. That would be consistent with, I think, $4, a little over $4 a gallon for a regular unleaded. Just for context, I think we got down, you know, we were closer to three at one point, not too long ago. And the high was five back in June of 2022 in the wake of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions on Russian oil. And our baseline here is that we're at this is the peak of we're at the peak in terms of price. We're not going higher here, and at least you know it can happen in a day or two, but not in any consistent way. The logic being that you know the price is now being largely set by decisions or uh, by Saudi Arabia around their production, and they've been cutting back production in an effort to get prices up, and they want prices that they they definitely want prices to be higher than eighty bucks a barrel. That eighty bucks is kind of key for them. That's Generates enough revenue for them to cover their fiscal needs. They've got pretty significant fiscal needs, and to kind of finance the investment they want to make in their transition to uh, away from fossil fuels, uh, trying to figure out different ways to drive economic uh, economic growth in their country. You know, my thinking has been that they don't want it much above ninety, because much if you go much above ninety, then you get demand. You know, it, it hurts uh, near-term demand. Uh, uh, people have to pull back on using uh, uh, using oil, gas, and jet fuel and everything else. And longer run, it, you know, if you stay above 90 for any length of time, that <clears throat> just incents a, a quicker transition over to green uh, energy and away from fossil fuel. I, I feel less strongly. I feel very strongly about the floor. I feel less strongly about the ceiling i 'm not sure the Saudis would have too much trouble if oil got to 100 bucks for a while. I mean that would be you know tremendous windfall. So I'm not sure about that. But I will say there is now a lot of excess global capacity to produce because of these cutbacks. You know, the Saudis have three million uh, plus in excess capacity. the uh, UAE, the United Arab Emirates, they've got a, a fair amount of excess capacity and they're they're actually investing very aggressively in expanding out their productive capacity. You got you got capacity sitting in Viet, in excuse me in um Iran uh uh you know sitting there a couple potentially a couple million barrels a day so that feels like that should put kind of a ceiling on price because if price gets too high I think we will see some of that oil come into the marketplace but nonetheless uh you know a lot of risk around that and if prices jump to $100 a hundred dollars a barrel plus, Gas here in the U.S. goes to you know four twenty five, four fifty, or certainly if we get back to five, I I don't know. Uh, this feels like it's going to be hard to bear. Um, Do you see the uh, strategic petroleum reserve being tapped? I don't think they can. I think it's I think they tapped it, uh, you know, back uh, a year ago, and you know because prices have been too high for them to really refill, refill it. Yeah. I also think there's some uh, physical issues with regard to refilling. I mean it's, it's apparently not straightforward just to refill it. You've got to do some maintenance and things. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I heard this from someone in the industry. So uh, I don't know that it, you know, even if you wanted to fill it, it would be straightforward to fill it. You know, there's gotta be some work done here to make sure that you can, you can refill it, but nonetheless, that's not going to help here. So I, I'm worried about that. Yeah. That's, that's number one on on my list. Uh, YouTube Marissa.
1: Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I'm, you know, we're talking about these things as if they're, they're risks, but all these things are actually happening to some degree. So I guess when we're talking about the risk, we're talking about the length of time, all these things go on. uh, without not the student loan one. Right. But like the UAW strike, a government shutdown. I mean, the UAW strike is here. Government shutdown is all, but here. High interest rates are here high oil prices are here. So it's just a mat, and, and these things are all happening at the same time. So it's just a matter of how severe do they get, right? I mean, we've baked these things into our baseline to some degree. So it's just a matter of, is it going to be worse than what we're expecting?
0: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Um, it, 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 we, we've got a narrative as to how this is going to play out, but a lot of uncertainty right. around that. Yeah. <clears throat> you know. uh, okay. Well, so you kind of add that all up. It feels like you know, not half great a point, at least, at least almost a point on GDP in the fourth quarter. If everything sticks to our script, and uh, I, you know, our forecast is for about a percent of GDP, so it's you know, uh, it's possible. I mean, Q3, no problem, GDP strong. growth is going to come in right now. It's tracking based on data four percent. Yeah. Our forecast when it's all said and done is for three, which is you know, strong growth. But you could get a zero negative. You could even get a negative print potentially under you know some on some reasonable scenario. So I don't know. It doesn't feel like we're certainly can't declare victory here. uh, Please don't. Part of the recession. No, no, not so. Okay, uh, let me just quickly let's let's end this part of the conversation because I want to bring bring Rob back. Re bring Rob into the conversation. Probability of recession in the next in the next year, starting in the next year, NBER, National Bureau of Economic Research, defined recession. Marissa, where are you?
1: 35%. Is
0: that where you were, where you've been?
1: It's up a little bit. I think I was at 30.
0: 30. Okay. 35%. You, Chris? 45. That's mm. where you were, right? 45? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. Yeah. I saw you hesitate there. You were thinking, maybe I should go back to 50, but you're going to stay at 45 well, yeah. the labor market, uh, you know. Yeah. Still right. quite I strong with you. <clears throat> All right. I'm at 30, 30%. No, no change. Okay. Okay. Very good. And let's bring Rob Fobber, CEO of Moody's into the conversation. Hey, Rob. Hey, Mark. Good, good to see good you. Good to be with you today. Yeah. You know, you're you're a busy guy. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, but you know, I've been wanting to get you on this podcast for a long time. Can you believe that we've been doing this two and a half years? I Hard to believe.
3: Yeah, it's incredible. I really enjoy listening to it, actually.
0: So, oh, really? I, I did. You're a listener. You're you're one of those nerdy guys that listen, huh?
3: Yeah, but I I don't do that well in the numbers game.
0: Well, we'll find out because <laughs> uh, uh, your comms team uh, volunteered you to play the the stats game. So oh, we're, we're, we're playing at some point along the way. I there. was afraid <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're great. I'm sure you're great. But I uh, but I appreciate you coming on. Hey, you know we've known each other. I was just thinking about this almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. You you I remember you led the I think this is right. You led the team that purchased economy dot com, the firm that uh my brother Carl, who's still with Moody's, my best friend Paul Getman and myself started back in nineteen ninety. You 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 kind of led the way on that, didn't you?
3: Yeah. I mean, it was it was the first acquisition that I did after I joined the company. And um, Mark, you know, it's it's wonderful to kind of look back on that, you know, thinking yeah. all those years ago and, uh, you, you know, as we, as we brought Moody's, uh, economy.com into the Moody's family. And now just to kind of step back and think about the integration of all of the content and expertise from what was economy.com and having you and, you know, your brother still here at the company. It's, uh, it really is a wonderful success story. I think.
0: No, I have, I have a, a, a memory of that time. Mm-hmm. I want to. Just- Get your take on it. So, uh, you knocked on our door. You know, we were a a small consulting firm. I think we had probably fifty. No, actually, we probably had seventy-five. You know, eighty people at the time, and um, we weren't thinking of selling the company. And uh, I knew Mark Almeida. uh, Paul knew Mark Almeida. He was the former CEO of Moody's Analytics, and he knocked on the door. He said, "Hey, you know, I'm going to be in town. I'd like to stop by and say hello." I said great. Fine. So we started having this conversation and I, quickly, I'm trying to figure out what something's going on. What's <laughs> going on here? What's going on here? And then he, he finally came out and said, you know, we're kind of interested in purchasing your firm, which was great. Yeah. Obviously that made us feel fantastic, Yeah. but here's the interesting thing. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you knew this, but like three days later, Fitch, you know, Fitch is the other rating one of the other rating agencies yeah. knocked on the door also huh. and said, we wanted to buy your company. Do you remember this? Do you think we made that? I, you were probably thinking I made that up.
3: You you might not have disclosed that
0: to me. <laughs>
3: oh, is that right? Is that right? I don't know, but
0: oh no, really. Oh, you I mean, don't remember that at all.
3: I you know, I, I guess I would say, Mark, I mean, that's the way we try to do the deals, though, right? Is you you try to do them, you develop a relationship with people, you find things that you think make sense for your company, and then you go out and and you and you talk to those you know management teams and we do everything we can to stay out of these auctions. Yeah, that's right. a very difficult way to buy any asset, right? right. You end up being, right. you know, the the highest price. So it's interesting that they were there. Um
0: it was and I'm not making that up. I'm not I, you know, they they knocked on our door. So it was really a weird right. and we, to be frank, Rob, I'm not sure we would have sold without Fitch there because we had no idea what our company was worth we had, we had literally yeah, no idea right it was yeah so so it, you know it's
3: interesting mark because that also says that y- you know companies were waking up to the important the increasing importance of this you know economic content you know and as we were thinking about building out our our solutions and our offerings we you know the thesis was that we were going to take that content and thread it through you know, a number of our solutions. And, and ultimately, Mark, obviously that's what we've done. And, and that's been great uh, for, yeah. you know, the economics business been great for Moody's.
0: Hey, I got another question for you. I got lots of questions for you.
3: <laughs> yeah. I got so, some for you too. Oh, I bet
0: you do. I bet you do. So 20 years, do I, do I get a gift after 20 years? <laughs> does, does like someone like call me up and say, zoom me up and say, I, I get, you get a gift.
3: I, I will call you. Mark.
0: <laughs> okay. That's, that's a, I'm that glad you've here. mentioned
3: this. I, I'm going to put a tickler on my calendar after
0: this. <laughs> uh, I was just angling for that. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for that. Well, you know, it, it, it the 20 years has been great. And, and it's hard to believe I, we've been part of Moody's longer than we were on, our own company. Cause we started in 1990 and we, uh, Oh wow. Yeah. Yeah. We were purchased by you, by Moody's in, in 2005. Yeah. And it's been, you know, it's been really, you know, obviously fantastic, you know, great, great experience. Um, but you know your career, and I know you want to talk about a lot of things, and we're going to. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence, AI. You know, that's obviously a really important topic. Uh, this concept of ex- exponential risk. Uh, we're going to talk about that. Sure. But before we kind of dive into that, I just want to get a better sense of you know your path to becoming CEO. It's just incredible to watch. Uh, you know, your success. And maybe you can just give us a sense of your career. And, you know, fundamentally, I'd like to know what the secret sauce is. How does one become CEO of a large multinational corporation? I, and by the way, I've got a theory on that. I've got like, I, you know, I always have theories. I, and i am try my theory out on you, but I want to I hear what should you hear. Do we
3: start with your theory or should we No, no, no. no.
0: I want to hear, okay. hear what you're going to say.
3: Well, I, I guess successful acquisitions must be part of the formula. Yeah. Okay. So um yeah. You know, look, I joined in 05, and and we had only been a public company for about five years, right? We spun off from Dun & Bradstreet, and uh I came in to run our corporate development team. And so this was basically uh, uh, focused on the growth of our businesses, um you know, mostly through mergers and acquisitions. And so, you know, we started with economy.com. We made several other acquisitions. And at some point, I think it was oh seven oh eight. we said, hey, look, we've got a critical mass of these data analytics software businesses. And, and it makes sense for us to set up another division of the company. So up until then, you might remember, I mean, when we acquired economy.com, there was really just the rating agency. Mm-hmm. And we realized that there was a lot of demand for all of this content. And we had a very strong customer base with investors. And so That's when we established the analytics business. And as you said, Mark Almeida ran that. I partnered with him and he grew that business. And, you know, now, interestingly, Mark, that business, this past year, the analytics business was just more than half of the revenues of the company. Oh, I
0: I didn't know that. Oh, wow. That is is a milestone for sure. Think about
3: that growth. It's actually 12%. Well, there's a number for you. I should have used this number.
0: (laughs) I've wasted it.
3: Uh, 12% compound annual growth rate of revenue since the establishment of Moody's Analytics. Wow.
0: That is amazing.
3: So look, I had the great fortune of being involved in all of that. And uh, that gave me a great uh, opportunity to really focus on the strategy and the growth of the company through a number of acquisitions and partnering with our business people. Then uh, our CEO, our former CEO Ray McDaniel, gave me a call and said, "Hey, would you like to come over to the rating agency?" And I moved over and ran what you would think of as, as the sales and product team, and I did that for three years. That was also a great seat because do the separation, you know, the Chinese wall that exists mm-hmm. between analysts and uh, and sales in the rating agency. I got a chance to focus on the business aspect of ratings. Mm. And so I did that for a few years. Then I, I I ran the ratings business. So I had six, seven years of, you know, in the rating business. It's one of the world's great businesses, wonderful business. So I had a really nice mix. I was very fortunate, you know, of being in the early days of Moody's Analytics and then working in the rating agency and the business side of the rating agency. I think that just, it gave me a very good, experience set and perspective that, uh, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, position me for this job. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, I'm hard press to think of anyone else who's had the kind of the breadth of your experience, right? It, there's, I mean, that's pretty amazing, both on the analytics side and on the rating agency side.
3: Yeah. I've been yeah. fortunate now. Yeah. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Yeah. So what's the theory?
0: Oh, uh, yeah, I, this is, this is the theory. And I have a limited sample, admittedly. I mean, I know I don't. I know a fair number of CEOs, but I don't know a lot of CEOs. But and this goes against TV stereotypes. But I find CEOs, and this really applies to you. They're just nice people. You know, they're just genuinely nice people. I because it makes sense. You you can't be elevated uh, over time through all kinds of different challenges unless you can work with people and people like you. Yeah. They have to like you and you're just, you're just a nice guy, you know? Uh, so I, I think that's, that's, that seems a little weird when you, if you watch succession, you know, that's, that's not, that doesn't describe the CEO running that company, yeah. but, or maybe, you know, some modern day similar CEO types, but that's been my experience. Uh, the other, the other thing, the other element to it you is is you're, you're very nice, but, you got an edge. You know, you're willing to make uh you know some you gotta make some tough choices and some tough decisions because stuff happens and you've got to, you know, yeah. pivot and you're able to do that. And that's not easy to do either. So that that that's my theory. Yeah. Okay.
3: Well, yeah. I appreciate that. I thought there was gonna be some some study that you were gonna be citing. No.
0: No, that's that's <laughs> uh, yeah, I, no, no. I,
3: I would say to that, Mark, that um, you know, times have changed, right? And I think I think our employees and colleagues want people that are authentic as leaders. And that's not just me, but the leadership of the firm. Uh, They want people that are empathetic. And, you know, just given everything we've all gone through the last few years, I think empathy, you know, starting in the CEO's suite, you know, the C-suite is a really important, you know, attribute for leaders of today. And, you know, Mark, I think we've even talked about it in town halls about how important empathy is. So,
0: yeah, I think, and I, and I know really- the listener out there is thinking I'm just sucking up to the CEO, yeah. and, and, and 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 you know what? Yeah, yeah, um, maybe you are. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I am. <laughs> maybe I am. No, no, I I honestly believe it. Hey, <laughs> well, I, I I promise we're gonna move on, but I want to yeah. bring uh, Chris and Marissa back into the conversation, and uh uh maybe because I had an opportunity to you know uh, ask you a question, Marissa. Maybe I'll turn to you. Do you have any? Questions for Rob? Anything that's been, you know, really bugging you that you'd like to ask? As opposed to, you know, not your how much (laughs) you're getting paid. That's probably not appropriate.
1: Yeah, I'm not going to ask that. We'll take that (laughs) (laughs) offline. This video can be edited for content after the fact. Um, I have a couple questions. Um, So, I mean, I do think it's fascinating your career trajectory, and having seen all different facets of the business, what um as a CEO I imagine it's an extremely constantly stressful job. What what worries you over like if you think about the next 5 years, you know, and you think about the business and the competitive landscape, what are you most worried about and what are you what are you the most excited about?
3: Yeah, Marissa, I actually the answer is going to be two sides of the same coin. So I'm going to start with most excited. Um, there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity for for us because of what we do and because of the world around us and mm-hmm. and what customers need you know to navigate the world of today. So I'm really excited about the capabilities that we have built out and we've spent about eight billion dollars over the last five years, eight billion dollars. Mm-hmm to build out capabilities well beyond credit to help our customers. Um, so that's really exciting. The flip side to it, actually one thing that that does worry me is prioritization. You know, you, there are a lot of things that we can do. And I actually see, I see you nodding your heads a little bit. At the end of the day, you can't do it all. And it really is important to think about how we allocate and just ruthlessly prioritize i know that's a phrase we use at the firm your time and effort your expense dollars and your capital dollars and you know that's something i think we really got to get right
0: you know you got this uh this asset called the the economics unit uh, just just saying uh in the <laughs> prioritization of yeah <laughs> Don't don't forget us. We
1: were at the <laughs> beginning there, Rob. You know? Yeah. Uh
0: sorry, sorry, Marissa, I interject. Uh, do you want to ask something else?
1: Yeah. Can I ask a more like personal, lighthearted question? You, you can ask anything you want. He can tell you I'm not answering it, but go ahead. Yeah. Actually, Joe told me that if I got up at 4 30 to do this podcast, that I could ask you anything. And so Joe's, Joe's, up on
0: that. Joe, so everybody knows is on the the comms team. And if you're not in a large multinational, comms means communication teams, the communication yeah. team. In fact, Rob, I think that's why we, we haven't been able to get you on. Joe's been nervous about Zandy, what he's gonna say. I think that's what's going on. <laughs> rightly he's, so.
3: Yeah, right, he's, right, he's rightly. Right. Right. Um, I was
1: I was so I was reading your your bio on hmm. Mint, and um it says you're an avid hiker and outdoorsman and traveler. And I was wondering, hey, do you actually get to do any of that stuff when you're CEO? And B, what's the last like great personal trip you took and were able to enjoy?
3: Yeah, um, I do get to do that stuff, Marissa. And I, I think this is really important that, um, that we all take time to recharge. In fact, I just sent a note this morning <laughs> to my team because one of my executive team members is on vacation for the week. And I asked my team to take him off of CCs mm and to not do the one-to-one meetings with him this week and just everybody to make sure we give him a chance to take a vacation. And um, CEOs need breaks too. And I think it's important for a few reasons. I mean, one, it's just good for me to be able to recharge, but two, it's a very important um, signal to the rest of the firm, right? We don't have a, have a workaholic on top of the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm am a I'm a father, I'm a husband, um, yeah I've got different roles that I play. I want to be a present parent. and you're right. I love to run and and bike and hike. and I actually find that when I'm out on a trail or I'm I'm you know riding 25 miles on the bike, that's a great time to think. Mm. And it I, so I actually think it's really, really valuable time. Um, you know and, I, and, and so I want to make sure that you know, I do it and set the example for the rest of the firm. In fact, I don't know what this says about me. The one of the most the highest engagements we I've ever gotten on a LinkedIn post was when I posted that I was going on vacation. <laughs> People seem to be thrilled. Uh, it's, to, to answer your, your the second part, uh, I took a wonderful trip with my family. I have a, a wife and, and two kids, and we went hiking in the Dolomites. You know, from
1: cool hut yeah. to
3: hot, it was just incredible.
1: Good. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I'm about to leave for a two and a half week vacation, Mark. FYI. So now, I understand. Are
0: you are off to Japan? Are you going? to? <laughs> I am. Me?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Good uh, for you. I'm headed in that direction in a few weeks too, but I'm, I'm you're on vacation, so don't yeah, worry. I'm on vacation. I'm gonna leave you alone. Yeah. Hey, we we got to get down to business, but Chris, okay. uh, I want to give you an opportunity too to pepper Rob here. Uh, any any questions?
2: Sure. Sure. So. Now that I know about the Dolomites, I would definitely go down that route. That's one of my favorite places on earth as well. But the question I have is really uh, in the other direction that uh, Marissa was looking at, which was looking more short term. Moody's is 114 years old, yeah. right? What how, what do you see Moody's becoming over the next 114 years? I think over the last four, 114, essentially been doing the same, roughly the same thing, rating rating businesses. Do you see that continuing or pivoting? What's your vision for the long term?
3: Yeah, so the rating business is the it's the endowment, it's the foundation, and uh, and there's there's I, I'd say the rating business is more relevant than ever to to the market. You know our views, and so we've been building on that. Um, and I, I, you know, we use this phrase, Chris, uh, uh, calling ourselves kind of an integrated risk assessment business. And people have been asking, you know, what, is, what does that really mean? I mean, you know, I think we're going to get into it a little bit when we talk about mm-hmm. exponential risk, but. We're moving from a firm that focuses on credit risk to focus that has a multifaceted view of risk to help our customers. And so we've built out these capabilities. The analytics business is now more than half of the business. And I think you're going to see that trend continue. You know, that's where there's a lot of growth opportunity for our firm. Um, So that's, that's how I tend, tend to think about it. We're going to, there's just a huge customer need to help, you know, help our customers, you know, with this multifaceted view of risk.
0: So so uh, Chris is used to long-term forecasting, you know, with this uh, climate risk uh, analysis we do. We now, you know, believe it or not, we, we forecast out to 2,100, 2,100. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Those are probably pretty accurate forecasts. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. I'll let you know. Chris, yeah. I have a hard time forecasting issuance one year ahead.
0: <laughs> oh well, there's nothing harder than that believe oh. me i've tried that's like <laughs> forget about it uh well that's a good segue into the uh, conversation in uh the, the way i kind of in my simplistic world view of, of moody's is historically in times past we were about credit risk you know yeah. we would provide the data the tools the analysis the analytics to investors to allow them to make judgments around the the, the risk that a, a company that or a government that issues a bond would default on that bond yeah and that kind of drove the train for well really up to mo- to when you bought us back you know right. almost 20 years ago and since then you uh, the, the acquisitions that uh, uh, been uh, that have occurred have been around expanding out the portfolio of risks that we are able to right. help. Right. folks grapple with uh, and there's a gazillion risks and that gets to uh, this vision you have that you've now dubbed uh exponential risk uh, l- let me say let me ask uh, did I get that roughly right and uh, maybe you can just dive in there and give us a better sense of what you mean by exponential risk
3: yeah you did get it roughly right
0: um
3: you know Mark if, if you if you I always like to kind of start with the customer lens. You know, and the, if you think about our customers, they're most of the world's largest banks, insurance companies, uh, corporations, government, you know, agencies. And you think about the world that they're dealing with, right? There's all sorts of different kinds of risks that they're having now to to deal with, and also an understanding that a lot of these risks are very interconnected, right? That they can have knock because the world is so interconnected, they can have knock on impacts. You know, it can have a domino effect. We've certainly seen that. And so, you know, again, think about what organizations are dealing with. It's not just financial stability and creditworthiness. It's, you know, you want to understand the reputational profile, um, ESG, uh, carbon transition, physical impacts of uh, physical risk related to climate change, data security, cybersecurity, financial crime, all, all of these things you know companies are having to to manage and so really a common theme with our customers is wanting to have more of a 360 degree view of who they're doing business with right who am i lending to who am i investing in who are my customers and who are my suppliers and um there's also a desire to understand how these risks then interconnect and 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 what the knock on impacts of these risks can be and i think covid was kind of the ultimate example of that you know if you think about you know what went on it obviously mm. it impacted every person every country every company every industry it impacted u.s sino relations there were was massive fiscal and monetary stimulus that led to inflation interest rates you know stress so i mean you just think about all the knock-on impacts from one virus mm. You know there was another example the other day that just recently i thought was pretty interesting where uh, clorox had a cyber attack and suddenly the concern becomes well you know could that's as we're entering flu season and potentially an uptick in COVID cases and what happens when a clorox plants get you know taken down so that's the kind of thing that companies are dealing with and that's why as you said mark we've built out all of our capabilities around this. And I'll give you one other example I think Mm -hmm. is interesting. I was talking to the head of digital transformation at this big European bank, and they said, at the time that we make a loan, we have to answer three questions. Can we do business with this company? Do we want to do business with this company? Mm -hmm. And will they pay me back? Mm -hmm. And Moody's, you've helped us with the third for a long time. We need help with all three. At the time we make the decision, and for the life of that loan. Hmm.
0: So uh, is it you're thinking that the risks that businesses and governments face are greater today than they have been in times past? Or uh, or, or more uh, they feed on each other to a greater degree than in times past? Has something changed in terms of the risk environment that we're all operating in?
3: I, I think so. I mean, think about cybercrime. Mm-hmm.
0: You know,
3: there's been a, there's been an exponential increase in cyber attacks over the last decade. You know, actors have become much, much more sophisticated. And so, you know, you think about the nature of the attacks, Mark, right? It, it used to be there'd be a breach of some database. There'd be a leak of some information, right? Think about today. There, there are attacks on physical infrastructure, that are having you know remember the colonial uh colonial gas oil pipeline right remember you know that was a cyber yeah, attack.
0: yeah. those
3: those, is, those risks are I the, uh, the, the other day there was a hospital that actually shut down due to a cyber attack they have closed permanently hmm. um I'd say is that the right same. they
0: actually had to close down because they closed permanently
3: they could wow. never get back up and running and they were already under some financial duress hmm. and they closed permanently so, you know, the same is true for financial crime, right? It's You know, if you think about what's going on and think about the environment we're in now with needing to do sanctions enforcement, much different than it was a decade ago, right? I mean, Russia, Ukraine changed the game in that regard. So, uh, and then I would say also, Mark, you know, think about for consumer companies and customer preference and the importance of understanding your labor practices. I mean, those things can really impact your brand if you get it wrong right if so you find out that you're manufacturing shoes uh you know at at a place that's using forced labor you may find there's a customer boycott which has been enabled by the rise of social media you know so i do think there's been an i think there has been an increase in these things and also i think regulators are now saying well now, we want to focus on how organizations are managing those risks. So you've seen mm-hmm. the SEC focus on disclosures around cyber attacks, and you've seen, you're very familiar with this, you know, bank regulators wanting to mm-hmm. understand, uh, you know, the impact of climate change on bank lending portfolios, right? So mm-hmm. there's a, the regulatory drivers for companies to need to understand these risks and and, and, Again, think. I know the work you all are doing around climate-adjusted probabilities of default and mm-hmm. stress testing, and so on. So,
0: mm-hmm. I guess the other aspect of this is uh, we're just a more globalized right. economy, right? And so the right. risks come at you from all over. In Moody's, we know that because we're everywhere on the planet, and so the problems can come from anywhere. I mean, I remember. Uh, you know we're we're we, we write analysis the economics team writes analysis for uh, different economies around the world and you know, we're a, we try to be very fact based database model based you know it's very uh uh quantitatively driven a lot of the analysis and uh we have a very uh involved editing process but but nonetheless we wrote a piece uh about Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was about, but it was about uh, India and Indian elections. And uh, the Indian government got really upset by this. And even Modi, I think, said something about it and got dragged Moody's in. So it can come from anywhere at any time. And you're going, what? That really? Uh, You know, so you got to, you know, uh, I think that's the point that, you know. Mark, I
3: mean, think about if we had a severe earthquake in in Taiwan. Yeah. Think about the global now, the yeah. global implications of that around semiconductors and, you know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, yeah.
0: yeah. Let me ask you this uh, there's a, a whole panoply of threats, risks, you know, uh, yeah. from credit risk, you mentioned yeah. cyber, you mentioned supply chains, you mentioned sanctions, you mentioned reputational risk, uh, regulatory risk. Is there, in your thinking, a risk that, is underappreciated that, you know, businesses face that, you know, are, is actually more serious than people think or have, have, have focused on. That may be an unfair question. I'm just, just curious if you, if, if anything kind of strikes you as like underappreciated as a threat.
3: Yeah. I, I maybe I'm going to turn that question just a little. I'll tell you one place where we're seeing more and more interest uh, starting to pick up and and mm-hmm. this is something that we had thought would be the case a few years ago but it is around understanding the physical risk relating to climate change
0: mm-hmm. and
3: severe mm-hmm. weather and you know companies really wanting to understand that and Mark I think one place that that's particularly industry interesting is 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 as the banking industry wants to understand that because if you think about for for forever that has. Uh, weather risk has just been insured by the global insurance industry but now banks are finally waking up to the fact that hey i may be underwriting a a loan that's secured by you know a 10-year loan that's secured by a piece of real estate and that you know what if that piece of real estate is in the hills of california Mm -hmm. and it's got a one-year insurance policy and so I need to understand the physical risk relating to weather and potentially climate change over some period of time, the life of that loan, make sure I price the, that risk appropriately. And I, it was interesting. I had this discussion a few years ago with a group of banks at one of our conferences, actually, you may have been there actually out Mm -hmm. in Arizona. Oh yeah. Yeah. The banking mm
0: -hmm, guy. And
3: you know, people were looking at me like, uh, you know, that's not really a risk for us because all of this stuff is insured. And I said, well, for
0: now it is, yeah, great point. And it seems you're absolutely right. That seems to come on the scene incredibly rapidly. like it wasn't even in the conversation a couple three years ago. Yeah. and now it's like it really matters, you know to, right. if you live in Florida or California in particular, oh, here's I, I got a question for you yeah and this is only because I watched. Chris gave a, a talk at one of our conferences last week. Guess which state has the highest homeowners insurance premiums in the country, Mercedes, you, you can. Oh, Mercy, you can't answer that question either. You were at the conference. Oh, you don't remember. You're, I, I
1: what remember, you remember what state had the lowest.
0: Ah, yes. homeowners yeah. Homeowners insurance. Right. Go ahead. Tell us who's who was lowest.
1: Hawaii. Hawaii.
0: Hawaii. Which is count, very
1: counterintuitive, right? Counterintuitive. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I would not have
0: yeah. not anymore, probably. Yeah. You know, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Nebraska has Nebraska. the highest. Yeah. If Oklahoma. Tornado. Oh, is it Oklahoma? Oklahoma. Oh, Nebraska's thinking, number two. I need to pay closer attention. <laughs>
1: to your you, were, you were in the right area. The I was in the right.
3: Well, <laughs> <That> <laughs> so
2: they they were both in rough. red on the chart. So. Because yeah,
3: yeah, of yeah. Uh, tornadoes and severe convective storms?
2: Correct. Yeah, yeah. So, so, They have some flooding in the east too. So
3: don't hold me to this stat because i don't know i have this correct i thought something like 70 percent of the losses this year in the united states have been due to severe convective storms really and tornadoes yeah so not hurricanes
0: yeah interesting. that's right yeah, yeah.
3: of so, course
0: you know this this the, we're we're all in on this because you know regional our regional economic work uh really and we do a lot of work for the real estate industry and you know they they're they're Clued in on this as an issue, and so we're spending a lot of time on it. And of course, we uh, Moody's purchased uh, RMS, right? The big insurance analytics firm. So that's that. you know
3: that's why we did it, right? Is we yeah. want to have yeah. world class weather and climate modeling capabilities and thread that through all of our solutions in the way ways that uh, the customers need it.
0: Right. Um, hey, well, let's let's move on. Uh, I want to get we're going to get to AI uh, shortly, but let's play the game the statistics game. I'm really uh, uh, curious to see how this goes. I'm nervous. A little bit nervous. You're nervous. nervous. Yeah, you're nervous. I'm nervous. You're nervous. And just to remind the listener, the stats game is we each come up with a stat. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through clues and questions, deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that's not so easy that uh, we get it immediately. One that's not so hard that we never get it. And one that's apropos to the conversation would, would be a plus. And uh, Rob, Rob, you're the guest, but tradition always has it. We begin with Marissa. Marissa, what's your? You're stat?
1: not. You're not giving this to Rob just because he's. No, busy. no, no. I'm yeah. letting him warm up. Letting <laughs> him get.
0: You know, him getting. You know, uh, in in the groove.
1: Okay. Um. My stat is fourteen point four five percent.
0: Um, uh, is it a an economic statistic that came out this week? Yeah. Is oh. it related to? Uh, the financial obligations ratio.
1: It is the financial <laughs> obligations ratio. <laughs>
0: uh, it is the see how that's hey Rob. Okay, no what? Rob. That's gotta it's be a high
1: impressive.
0: bar. Yeah, it's gotta be impressive. That's very impressive.
1: <laughs> oh there you go. There you go. That's what, <laughs> staged. Now he's sucking up. It was he's staged. sucking up to me now. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Uh you want to explain Marissa?
1: Sure. So uh, this is a measure of household debt and other financial obligations, like the amount of income, the share of a household income that goes to debt payments, car leases, rents, if they're not a homeowner. So it represents the, you know, the sort of the stress or the debt burden of a household. This fell in the second quarter, kind of unexpectedly for, and it's Uh, The lowest it's been since the end of 2021. And if you look back at the whole series, it's extremely low. It's still near an all time low, the data go back to 1980. So this kind of goes to a lot of what we've been talking about recently about why the economy has been so strong, why it hasn't fallen into a recession yet. And one of the reasons why we think it will not is that even despite the higher interest rate environment, um, there has been a pullback in in demand for lending for some categories of of borrowing for consumers and households look really solid in in terms of their financial situation. Um, so, it, just the fact that it's still falling through the first half of this year, I think, you know, despite that we're at in a high interest rate environment and likely not moving from that for a while is pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah, I was surprised. And and Rob, that's an example of uh, uh, exponential risk, I think. I mean, that goes to household credit risk. uh, But it also highlights the difficulty in assessing risk because that statistic is kind of down the middle of the distribution, right? And you gotta look at the tails of the distributions because there's a you know a boatload of folks at the low uh, end of the district, low income uh that are obviously that that financial obligation ratio doesn't really express the kind of financial pressure they're under, right? Marissa? Yeah.
1: yeah. And I, I think some other statistics that we saw kind of highlight what you're saying this this week. We were looking at savings rates across different cuts of demographics, yeah. and we see that. You know, this one and a half trillion of excess saving that's out there, like 70% of it is with households that are high income, people that are over 55 years old, right? So younger households, lower income households really don't have that much saving left. It really is concentrated. So when you dig into the details, it's important to dig into the details.
0: Yeah. And the, you know, the student loan borrowers are Mm -hmm. going to start repaying and we'll see how... Uh, you know, there's an example of, you know, uh, an event that can have all kinds of knock on effects. Right. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that uh, plays out. Um, uh, Rob, you want to go next? Uh, okay. You're up. All right. 23. Ooh, 23. Is it, is it related to the economy?
3: It's related to something we've, we've talked about,
1: uh, on this podcast.
0: On this podcast. 23. 23.
1: Is it related to a climate event? It is.
0: Oh, a climate event. Twenty-three hurricanes in the last year.
3: Getting closer. Tornadoes in the last year.
0: It's been in the last year.
3: So you've narrowed it. To you got the right time
0: <laughs> period. But not hurricanes. Is some kind? Is it some kind of physical risk? Event It is. Yeah. Globally. Or in the U.S. 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 Twenty-three. What's um
1: uh, should we just start naming different wild? Yeah,
0: fires? It, it was a is it um, what? if it's not hurricanes, uh, it's not
1: tornadoes,
0: Named storms, no, uh, flooding events,
3: weather events, okay, above a certain threshold.
0: Oh, oh. that
3: makes sense, that makes sense,
0: like over a certain dollar amount of damage. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: So twenty three weather events this year in the U.S. over a billion a billion dollars
0: a billion dollars. That's yeah. So
3: the the twenty three is a record. Yeah. Uh, you know, not not surprising, right? This yeah. Is not, uh, in um, the twenty three is a record, but the absolute uh, dollar amount of damage is not a record. In fact, two thousand seventeen right. was the biggest year. So so far this year. It's something like about sixty billion dollars from these weather events, these twenty-three weather events. Hmm. And in two thousand seventeen, it was about three hundred and eighty-five billion. If you remember, wow. it was um, yeah. it was Harvey, it was Maria, it was Arma. You had three huge, yeah. really impactful hurricanes.
0: Yeah, that that's a really good one. That's a really good statistic. Uh, it, um, did you have another one? I think the uh, Joe has sent you another one. N- uh, no. No, I, that, that, this is all You're I tapped got, out. Mark. You're tapped I, out. I totally <laughs> tapped out. That was a good one though. I, that was a really Thanks. very very good one. Uh, Chris, you want to go? Uh sure.
2: 1.66 million.
0: Is a economic statistic that came out this week? It is. It is.
1: Housing no. related?
0: Nope. Is it UI related, unemployment insurance related? It is. It is. Come on. Oh, now you okay. got it. Huh? uh 1.66 million it's not continuing claim it is indeed oh okay rob rob i'm just saying it, it, it's <laughs> it's hold on. Is somebody using a co-pilot <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well we've we've out you know we thought marissa was doing that at one point actually yeah because marissa's like she's like really good at
1: this game she is really good at this yes game. but you know co-pilot doesn't have like the most recent information. Right. So uh, it was, you really pointed, wouldn't help here. you pointed
0: that here. out. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you pointed that out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you want to explain, Chris? Why'd you pick that? Yeah. 1.66
2: million is the lowest level in continuing unemployment insurance claims since January. So they had spiked to 1.85 million in April. And seeing the level come down is indicating that this remains a very strong labor market. The uh, folks who are getting laid off, even though they're relatively few, uh, given the initial unemployment insurance claims, they're getting jobs fairly quickly, so we're we're keeping this level down, and this is consistent with the narrative—the slow session, soft landing narrative, where perhaps the number of job openings declines, but the layoffs remains quite low. So this is a positive sign, along with the uh, financial information that Marissa cited there.
0: Hey, Rob, I've, I've got a there's a theory I want to just test it out on you um, from your perspective uh that businesses in general are very reluctant to lay off workers uh because the labor market's been very tight you know for quite some time pre-pandemic it was very tight during the pandemic obviously excruciatingly tight cuz of the pandemic post-pandemic tight and businesses are looking forward and they're seeing uh you know the demographic trends you know aging out of you know my generation uh, weaker immigration are going to keep labor markets tight and therefore they know that their number one business problem uh, not not always but kind of through the thick and thin is finding work uh talented work workers and retaining those workers and as such they really don't want to lay off they'll do other things though you know they'll hire a little less aggressively they might f- un- slow down filling those unfilled positions They might cut back hours, you know, if you're in a manufacturing or construction, you can't hard to do that in a Moody's, but a construction manufacturing firm, um, you know, might use less temp help. Uh, And that's one reason why we're not seeing layoffs. And one reason to be optimistic that we won't suffer a recession because it's hard to see recession without layoffs. Uh, What do you think of that theory? Does that resonate with you? Or is that, uh, how do you think about that?
3: Uh, I tend to think about Mark. You you mentioned um the importance of attracting and retaining. I mean, it's it's certain talent. The way I Mm. think about it, there are certain job families that are in particularly intense demand. At least you know, from where we sit, we're in kind of the knowledge worker economy, which is Mm -hmm. different than you know retail or manufacturing. So Mm -hmm. I I can't quite speak to that. But Mm -hmm. what we do see is really intense demand for certain job families, you know, not surprisingly, you know, software engineering, but, but also things like, you know, compliance and audit and, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of, of, of jobs. And so there, you know, despite, it's interesting, despite the fact that we've seen turnover come down at, at, you know, at the company, mm-hmm. there's still, uh, you know, I think we still think of it as a very, very competitive labor market, and putting a premium on retaining, you know, that talent. Hmm. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's just th- it's a theory that's hard to prove one way or the other, right? Uh, but it's kind of a narrative that's out there that yeah. Um, yeah, that uh, people are using. Um, okay. Do you want me to give a statistic? Or are we getting long in the tooth here? Should we move on? Because I do want to spend a few minutes on AI. Do you have a few more minutes, Rob, or should we? You want another stat, or you want to one yeah, more? You,
3: you all can dazzle me with your okay. deductive reasoning.
0: I I got a I, I've got a hard one. That will be. Um, and it it pertains to the first part of the conversation where we talked about the kind of the immediate risks to the to the economy, and you remember student loan payments and UAW strike and so forth and so on. So here's the stat and I'll I'll help you out if you can't get it, but twenty two.
3: that's very close to mine.
0: I know. That's why I was I was a little, was a little nervous. About that. Yeah, you, you had my stat. Did it come out this week? This number? No, it's a kind of a historical stat. Kind of sort of like Rob's stat.
1: Is mm. it a is it a time measure?
0: No. It, it's t- the number of times this has happened. 22 times over history.
1: The number of times strikes. the government has shut down. Oh. Ding, ding, oh. ding, 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 wow. ding, 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 ding. Okay. Ding.
0: Yeah, yeah. Ding, ding, ding. That is great. See, I told you, Rob. She's yeah, like, this a, is yeah. she's amazing. She's yeah. amazing. And she's, there's no way she could have typed that in to BART or something to get Hands there. Are up oh. here. <laughs> wow. Hands yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 20, the government has <laughs> shut down 22 times uh since uh the the 70s when the current budget process was put into place and do you want to marissa take a stab at uh how many times oh well i'm gonna stop right there i had another step but i think i got it wrong i was thinking to myself i can't be right but yeah 22 times that's hard to believe and you know here we might be on on our 23rd time and obviously a real a very significant threat to the um, you know the economy here in the near term hopefully they, they figure this out okay let's move forward uh let's talk about ai rob mm. uh you know it's this thing that's we actually we had martin this fellow martin fleming on last week uh i don't know if you caught that he's a he, i thought he was great uh uh or was it two weeks ago we had him yeah on.
3: I, yeah a couple weeks yeah two
0: weeks ago we had uaw uh, last week uh, he was a former chief economist at IBM, and he's at the Productivity Institute, and you know, really provided a lot of insight. M- actually, made me feel better about AI. Uh, but you know, uh, that has come on the scene very, uh, at least in my thinking, very quickly, and uh, is uh, very aggressively. Do you think? Do you think this is a game-changing kind of technology, or or is it? you know there's other technologies that come on and kind of moved on like i think a blockchain not that not that there isn't real applications for blockchain and that that's a big that's an important uh, technology it is but it's not this game it doesn't feel like no, anymore no. this game changing thing no. do you think ai is game changing i do you do yeah because
3: um first of all one of my developers said the new language of coding is English hmm. you know, so think about that hmm. it's yep. it's a tool that everyone is able to use right you don't you don't have to be a computer programmer to be able to get enormous value out of you know large language models and and u- using these chat you know GPT models and Mark, you know we we uh, deployed it to all of our employees at the company. In a you know in a safe secure environment uh, and it's been incredible to see the innovation that it has unleashed and for a business like ours you know let's go back to the conversation we had about all these different risks right to be able to query our con you know our data our models our research on demand, and to be able to get insights across credit and climate, for instance, right? Today, you know, those are we, we have credit research on our website, we have, you know, climate models in our RMS, you know, workflow software, but we're going to be able to allow customers, we have to query all of that together to be able to bring those insights together. So, this idea that we were talking about, you know, this multifaceted view of risk, I think. Generative AI is a is a game changer in terms of enabling that, and then delivering it back in a simple natural language user interface. So for us, I think, and in, in our, in our customers, I do think it's a game changer. In fact, that's why we partnered with Microsoft earlier this year because we thought that part of what we wanted to do was to really revolutionize the way that that research is consumed, you know, by by the investment community.
0: You know, uh, economists kind of look at AI through the prism of what it means for the uh, productivity of the workforce, right? And one uh, thought, there's a lot of debate about this, and it's a really important debate, you know, from a macroeconomic perspective. You know, if if it it significantly raises productivity growth, you know, that has all kinds of implications Uh, about the size of the labor force, uh, about income and wealth and, Fiscal, I mean, I can go on and on and on. One uh, kind of debate or argument uh, or concern is that AI ultimately will be very productivity enhancing. It'll make us all better at what we do, uh, m- meaningfully better. But getting from here to there, could be actually hurting productivity could be because you've got to make big investments, right? As you say, it's, it's data. Uh, you, 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 you got to invest in data. You got to in, invest in people, right? You got to find the right people to be able to implement it. You got to invest in the computing power because this is this all rests on the ability to, to, uh, uh, to operate uh, at a very high pace. And all of that may impede productivity growth before it actually kicks in. No? Yeah? It, I don't know it if ends. it's
3: impeding productivity growth. I mean, you're yeah. the economist, but I mean, I look at some of the other big technology cycles. I mean, okay, so- when the internet came out Mm -hmm. people had to make investments and had to you know had to convert to digital business models and so there's a period of transition and then when the iphone came out and people had to move to making everything mobile um so yes there's a i don't know about the productivity aspect but certainly there's going to be a period of investment and you're right Mm -hmm. the same Mm -hmm. is true here for the exact reasons that you you know that you talked about I, i guess and maybe i'll flip this back to you i mean you know, one thing that's on my mind is um, just the very rapid pace of the introduction of this technology and the application of this technology, um, you know, as we've, as, and we've seen it before, as you go through technology cycles, you have new jobs created, mm-hmm. and then you have other jobs that are made obsolete. And it just feels like this is going to happen even faster than in other technology cycles, I mean, you think about it, we weren't even really talking about I mean, this wasn't a podcast topic in January, I'm sure, right? yeah, right. So, I mean, how do you think about that because that that feels like a, you know, kind of a, a a bigger societal, you know, an economic issue, yeah,
0: i my sense is, and you pick the internet, I think that's a great analog. I think you know, we all saw the internet, we saw the potential immediately. you go, oh, this this is a game changing right. thing. You weren't quite sure how, but you know you knew this was going to change the way we did we we lived and the way we worked, and it took a time it took time before it really kind of kicked into gear. And the other thing is, it it's 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 uh, one difficulty the internet uh, of incorporating the internet into business practices was you know you had to change your the way you organize yourself within a company, and that takes time and energy and is can, you know, be counterproductive, at least initially. I mean, to because you're all trying to figure it out and how to organize yourself. And that it was ultimately when new businesses form and they optimize around the internet, uh, that, you know, we things really took off. Yeah. You know, that they they didn't they didn't have the legacy of the former whatever structure. They could they could de novo say this is the way we're doing it. And you know, as a result, they had enormous and that's when you got new products and you know, really game-changing things that you couldn't imagine before, you know, that that's when they really started to happen. And that's kind of the analog, I think, here, uh, uh, that I'm thinking about here, that it's it's going to take a little bit of time to figure it out and for new businesses to form and, and to optimize around it. But having said that, it feels like it, you know, it could be kind of a cliff event, you know, like, for example, we're working to try to figure out how to improve the analysis we do with ai and it's not easy you know and we've been trying for a while even before chat gpt mm-hmm. we've been yeah. you know you know this better than i i mean all throughout the company but in the economics world we we were we, we contracted with the open ai well before open ai yeah. was a you know a, yeah. a common you know in the common parlance yeah. and it's it's not easy but i, I have this sense that once you kind of figure it out, boom, you know, then things change really quickly, dramatic. Like I mean, when I say quickly, like within a few weeks, things change, you know, dramatically. And I, so there might be more of a cliff event here than I'm anticipating. That's, But that's kind of the I think the Internet's a really good analog to, you know, and I think most economists are using that as their analog for trying to assess, you know, how chat, how this is going to play out. Yeah. Let me ask you one other question, though, <clears throat> and I asked this of Martin Fleming. Are, are you know you hear all these dark voices? You know the like Sam Altman, the the founder of OpenAI, or, or or Elon Musk, and there's many others. Do you worry about that? About the kind of the dark side here, and how we or how we're going to set up governance around this and make sure that it doesn't, you know, it's not a problem.
3: You know, pro- probably again, lo- like I would worry about it with the internet. Yeah. Right. And um. You know, it's early days. And I think part of the challenge here is this, as you said, feels like it's moving even faster to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is one of the most widely adopted applications in history. Right. So it's in it's in everybody's hands. Um, and I think that does. And look, people are going to use the technology for bad and they they as they always do. Right. I mean, you, you see what's going on with cyber criminals and, and all of that. So this mm-hmm. will be no different. There will be people mm-hmm. that will figure figure out how to do bad things with this. I, I think it's incumbent on uh the the policy making community and business to figure out, you know, what are the principles and frameworks for responsible use? That's something we're giving real thought to, Mark. And, you know, look, we have a, you know this because you, you certify to it every year. We have a mm-hmm. business code of conduct. So we're already hard at work on thinking about what does a code of conduct look like that's applied to AI, you know, thinking about the purpose of these tools, uh, the accountability, the transparency, the security, you know, all of those kinds of things. I, I think we've got to make sure that businesses and policymakers are focused on this. And I would say, you, you know, to get this right, you've got to have a framework that, because this is ultimately going to get regulated, right? Mm -hmm. But you've got to have a framework that still allows innovation because there's tremendous potential, but at the same time, you know, mitigates the, you know, kind of negative uses of of the technology.
0: Right. Well, I I know we, I said, I thought was going to be 45 minutes. This is, is, we're on an hour now. (laughs) I really appreciate it though. I can go, we can go on and on and on, but I know you're, you're going to catch a plane to... I'm not sure where you're going, but I'm sure uh, hopefully- uh, Undisclosed location, Mark. Undisclosed. Black <laughs> site. <laughs>
1: well, there,
0: there you go. There you go. But uh, I want to thank you for taking the time and really appreciate everything you know you do. Uh, so thank you. Yeah.
3: Well, thank you for having me. And Marissa and Chris, it, it was great to be with you. And, and I assure you, I am very wowed by your prowess with the numbers game. <laughs> that, that was a big takeaway from me.
0: There's no way Chat GPT Bart no. is going to replace that, I assure you. We, <laughs> got we got the best in the business. The best in the business. Shameless plug. Shameless.
1: Thanks, Rob. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Well, with that, dear listener, uh, we're going to call this a podcast. Uh, talk to you next week. Take care now.